0: The easiest way to make an athlete worse is to take away autonomy. Your most important job is not to get them faster or have them do better or higher grades or whatever have you, is to develop the joy of whatever pursuits they're doing. And if you can do that, like the rest takes care of itself. The environment impacts you more than you realize, more than we account for. I want healthy, happy, human beings who can use sport as a way to challenge and push boundaries and like find themselves and like struggle and all those things. But we can do it in a way that makes them grow as individuals. And if we do that, like who cares if you run 401 or 355? The best thing that you can do as a leader to create resilient teams is to be authentic and support people in a way that helps them be authentic in what they're doing.
1: Troll podcast. Hey, everybody, welcome to the podcast where we have devoted many, many episodes to the subject of why it's important to do hard things, which just so happens to be the title of today's guest's latest book. His name is Steve Magnus, and if that rings familiar, it might be because this marks his third, but also his first solo appearance on the show, his first two appearances accompanied by recent guest, Brad Stolberg. For those unfamiliar, Steve is a former elite track and field athlete, a 401 miler and elite track and cross country coach turned author and world renowned expert on performance. In addition, Steve consults on mental skills development for professional sports teams, including some of the top teams in the NBA, and has also coached numerous professional athletes to the Olympics and world championship level. His writing has appeared in Outside, Runner's World, Forbes, Sports Illustrated, and Men's Health. His expertise has been featured everywhere from the New Yorker and the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal. And alongside Mr. Stolberg, Steve pens the Growth Equation newsletter and co-hosts the podcast with Brad of the same name. I've got a few more thoughts on the specifics of the conversation to come, but first. Hey everybody, like me, Inside Tracker wants to help you start the new year right. So, they're thrilled to help support the Living Proof Challenge, the no-cost, science-based habit-building program designed by my well-being wizard brother Simon Hill to specifically uplevel the most important biomarkers that drive healthspan that drive disease prevention, physical fitness and mental well-being courtesy of a doable, evidence-based 12-week program elaborated upon in length in my conversation with Simon that dropped January 1. That's RRP804. If you listen to that episode, then you know the program entails comprehensive blood testing at both the commencement and conclusion of the challenge and nobody handles blood testing better than Inside Tracker, who are Graciously encouraging everyone to join the no cost challenge by offering a 25% off discount on inside tracker tests. To unlock the discount and learn more about this challenge, visit theproof.com slash livingproof. We're brought to you today by Momentous. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible. They're not third-party tested or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentus products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentous for yourself by going to livemomentous.com richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's dot scom slash richroll for 20% off. that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own N.A. beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare and all its varieties, and... Deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but... Basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. Okay, Steve Magnus, do hard things. So today we deconstruct a new approach to unlocking true toughness, both physical and and mental resilience, how to lead others to optimal performance and the path to unlocking the potential that resides within all of us. We discussed Steve's background as a running prodigy and 401 miler, what he learned from his frustrated ambition to break the lauded four minute barrier, the healthy mind body spirit approach to getting the best out of ourselves and those under our tutelage or leadership And really for the first time, Steve shares very candidly many never before publicly disclosed thoughts on his experience working under disgraced coach, Alberto Salazar at the Nike Oregon project and what ultimately led him to blow the whistle on Salazar's illegal doping activities. I really enjoyed talking to Steve. This one is a combination of great stories and actionable takeaways. So here we go. This is me and Steve Magnus it's good to have you here i'm excited to talk to you it's interesting that you're here the same week that the episode with brad went up because we've done multiple conversations with the two of you together but this is my first crack at just getting you alone um so much to talk to you about the new book is called do hard things it comes out june 21st right so that's very exciting your fourth book
0: yes four books yeah, that's the, pretty wild. Yeah,
1: and on the heels of, of retiring as a collegiate track and field coach at University of Houston, where you've been for quite some time.
0: Yeah, nine years, so mm-hmm. quite a change. Mm-hmm. How does it feel
1: to no longer be under in the academic fold? It's
0: freeing and strange. So freeing because like you're out of this kind of bureaucracy that kind of controls your schedule and what you do, uh-huh. but also strange because it was my life for so long. Yeah. Right? like kind of grounded.
1: Well, it dovetails into some of the themes in the book, this idea around agency and and having the ability to, you know, kind of control your destiny that are so tied to um our ability to be resilient and, and successful.
0: Yeah, it really does. And it's it was interesting writing the book while making this decision. Like it was almost this surreal moment where I'm like, oh, I wrote about this. I talked about how to navigate these situations uh-huh. where you have like one part of you pulling you to be like oh stay like this is your life and the other part pulling you to be like you know this is you can be free mm-hmm. like explore this so. right
1: you got to you got to you got to walk your talk yeah you know if you're going to be espousing this message so here we are though Exactly. Yes, you had agency to get on a plane this morning and and come here and fly back to Houston tonight, which is its own endurance event. That,
0: that's right, you know, still got that, might not be as fast as I once was, but still got the mindset, right? Yeah, now. well,
1: I thought we could take an opportunity to kind of dive into your personal background in a little bit more depth, because although we've touched on it in our other conversations, A, those conversations were a long time ago, uh, and secondly, they've always just been you know, in the context of something else that we've talked about. So we haven't really heard your full story. So why don't we just begin with you as this high school track and field prodigy and what went right and what went wrong. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, let's go all the way back to what I call the beginning, which is I ran really fast in high school. And I ran really fast actually early in high school. So when I was a freshman, I ran 421 in the mile, which at that time was like the second or third fastest freshman in the country. Mm. And I wasn't very good in junior high. I ran track, but I mostly played soccer. So I I got thrown out onto the stage of like, oh my gosh, people expect things of me.
1: Mm. But But how did that leap take place so quickly?
0: You know, I think it was just kind of a bless of puberty hitting and then like, I actually trained. So I got kind of taken up uh, like under the wing uh-huh. of some of the older athletes who said like, hey, Steve, like if, you, if you're gonna run cross country, like you should train. And I didn't train at all, like I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. So I remember the first run that I did with one of these senior athletes who said, hey, we're gonna go run five miles. And I was like, five, five miles? Like I ran a, a mile and a half race and track and that's the furthest I've ever run. And it's like, <laughs> oh, you'll be all right. Uh huh. I get to three miles, I stop, I throw up and tell him like, I'm walking home, this sucks, I'm done. And he said, Steve, you can be good. To be good, you have to put in the work. Uh huh. And that just kind of stuck with me where I was just like, all right, I guess I'm gonna try and be good at this thing called running and it just kind of carried on. So from
1: that moment of throwing up in the midst of a five mile run to running four twenty three or whatever it was that year, like how much time had elapsed?
0: So that was maybe about five months. That's it, that's crazy. Yeah, so I mean, I just skyrocketed. Every single race, I got better, 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 better. It just came kind of naturally because I was training, I was competing. The coaches were just like, I remember again, my freshman year, this was, This was, let's say, 1999, 2000. So a high schooler hadn't broken four since like the 1960s. Mm. And I remember my high school coach pulled me aside and said, Steve, you have the opportunity in a couple of years where I think you can break the four-minute barrier. And I I was like, I'll know what that is. And he said, go home and look up Jim Ryan. So I go home on like the the dial-up internet Mm -hmm. and look up who Jim Ryan is. I'm like, holy crap, like this guy ran... 355 in the mile in high school. Like my coach thinks I can be kind of like this guy. Okay, let's go. Did you
1: have a coach who knew what he was doing?
0: Yeah, I did. Uh, He ran and I had two coaches, one who ran in college. So he was familiar with distance running. And the one had been a track coach for like 20 years, but coached sprinters and Mm -hmm. elite level sprinters um, at the high school level. But he didn't know anything about distance running but he was just like i'm going to help you out i'm going right. to i'm going to learn as much as i can because i think we've got this phenomenal right talent. so
1: these two guys are like we got something special here we got to up our game yes. and try to see what we can make
0: of this young steve magnus
1: yes and fast forward to you being
0: a senior so see the the funny thing is i skyrocketed and then for the next couple of years i stagnated so i my best Mile going into my senior year was I think around four seventeen, mm-hmm. so only small improvements. And then my senior year, I just hit that magic again, where every race I got faster, 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 until I ran a, a four oh one mile on the biggest stage at the Nike Pre Fontaine Classic against, you know, Bernard Lagat, who was a, the fastest person in the world at that time, uh-huh. and all these these phenomenal athletes,
1: right. The goal, however, being to
0: go under four. <laughs> and it drove me nuts because I ran four or one there. I ran four or one um, in another high school meet. I ran four oh three somewhere else. So I was always knocking at the door. Uh-huh. And I thought, gosh, I'm so close, like this is here. But in the back of my mind, I always, I, I just kind of knew. I said, you know what, if I don't get it, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna crush this thing in college. This is no big deal. Like I'm at the beginning, but I didn't. Yeah. So that 401 mile in high school remained the fastest time that I ever ran. Right. And looking back at that period of time in your life with all the
1: coaching experience that you have today, do you, sort of cycle through, I should have done this, I could have done that, why didn't I do this? For, and how much of that is related to you writing these books about you know, how to approach your goals in a
0: healthier and, and you know, more robust way? For a long time, that 401 and not 350 something really bothered me because running was my thing. It was what I got known for. It was what I was good at. It was what I saw other people have expectations for me as. So my secret weapon was always hard work. So I just work harder, harder, harder. Mm-hmm. And if things didn't go well, I just doubled down on that. So looking back, uh, absolutely. Which is natural, that's yeah. a natural response. Uh, natural response, but I think looking back, I'd say almost all of these, the books that I've written have had some like origin in the fact that I ran 401 right. and not three fifty. It's
1: only if, yeah, like sort of premise. It,
0: yeah, and it, it's not so much that now that I wanna go like back and do this. I almost think the best thing that happened to me was not breaking that barrier because it forced me to come to terms with something, which is I was narrowly focused and my entire world was running. And in college, especially as I was trying to break that barrier, if a race didn't go well, I was devastated. Mm -hmm. My world was crushed.
1: There was no separation between identity and performance.
0: Zero. It was, if I ran 405, it was Steve, you are a failure. Like you yourself are a failure. And that was, that was really difficult to respond. Yeah,
1: Yeah, and your academic career was really just an excuse to continue to train. I've heard you speak about like, you weren't really all that tapped into whatever you were doing at school. And even graduate school was just basically a way to get your parents off your back so you could keep training.
0: Yeah, so it, exactly. So after I had finished my undergrad, I kind of bummed around for six months and just like, Literally bummed around, like lived off the the small savings I had, and trained mm-hmm. and after about six months, my parents are like, Steve, you have to do something with your life <laughs> like right. you're smart, you're driven, you got to do something
1: uh-huh so how did you find your way into coaching
0: so it was it was pretty much I went to grad school so that I could buy myself time to keep training and figure out what to do mm-hmm. and then I found my way into coaching because when I was in right before grad school, the high school coach I had had retired and they didn't have a new coach and they were gonna fill a coach, but they just kind of took their time as all high school coaches did. And it was the summer and I was back home training, like living with my parents, bumming around, figuring out what to do. Mm -hmm. And I trained at the like one park in the suburbs of Houston that everyone trained at. And I had all these high school kids who were like, we have no direction they haven't hired a coach like can you help us out and i was like sh- all right sure mm-hmm. and there were a bunch of really dedicated and great kids and helping them out is what launched me into coaching cuz i was like this is fun mm-hmm. like i'm getting to give back and and at that time i had not as much awareness but just enough self-awareness where i could be like you know here's a couple really talented kids who had the who had the the talent to make it on the college and maybe even beyond level. And maybe I can pass along some wisdom so that they, they can like course correct away from the path that I took. Mm, interesting, because another
1: response to that that I wouldn't judge you for would be like, I don't want anything to do with running anymore. Like I, I didn't achieve my goals and you could kind of grind on that resentment and just move in a completely different direction.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think that was, that would have been a legitimate option and I think in some ways running was the only thing I knew because I just, I did well in school, but I didn't care at all about anything right. else. Nothing else piqued my interest. The, the coaching and the kind of exercise science and psychology piqued my interest, probably out of selfish reasons at mm-hmm. first to understand. But like, that's the only thing where I was like, oh, this might be interesting.
1: Yeah. So it starts out with you just of your own accord and goodwill helping out these high school kids, but how does that, you know, position you to end up as this elite guru of track and field?
0: <laughs> I honestly, you know, I, I, it's almost like I have no idea because it happened so fast. Uh huh. I started coaching high school kids, and then at the same time, I was like, "Well, I'm learning a lot. I'm just going to put out like in, in those days, like 2010." I was like, I'm gonna put out a blog online. Mm. And I just start writing about like the science and I was in grad school and the coaching and kind of you know, intertwining each and talking about the lessons learned. And that did fairly well. And then I think really that started is I was finishing up grad school. I was debating whether I should finish early, which I, I could if I pressed a class and my my thesis or Stick around and bum around for another semester and kind of keep it going so that I could delay my real life. Uh huh. And then I get a call out of the blue from Alberto Salazar.
1: So you went straight from blogger helping out high school kids to Nike Oregon Project. Yes. I mean, that's that doesn't happen, no. right? <laughs> like that's that's wild. And you didn't have any real coaching credentials. No. And you weren't a superstar as a runner, you flamed out in high school. So what, what do you think sort of alerted Alberto that you would be a good candidate to join his, his project, which we're gonna get into, but
0: so, aside
1: from all the nonsense. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> what he told me at the time <laughs> and looking back, I think I'd answer this question differently, but I'm gonna give you my, my at the time moment is that he read something that I wrote And he referenced it. I was like on some, you know, analyzing some training of some elite Ethiopians Mm -hmm. and Kenyans. And he was like, this is great. We're looking for an assistant coach with some science background to come in and like help me out. Are you interested? And I was like, 100%. And to me at that time, I thought I had hit like the jackpot. Mm -hmm. I thought I was, like this was a dream job right away. This is something that I thought maybe maybe if I worked hard could occur like twenty years in the future. Right. So I was I was all, all in from all day in. one. Yeah.
1: And so you just pack your bags, move to Eugene, Portland, Portland. Yeah. Yes, Portland. Sorry, and uh, and hence began this very interesting chapter of your
0: life. It only lasted about a year and a half, but it impacted my entire life for the next you know, well, it's been 10, 11 years. Right,
1: so, so much has been well-documented about what happened with Alberto Salazar and the Nike Oregon project. We don't have to rehash all the dirty details of all of that, Um, but I do wanna give you an opportunity to share your perspective on what went down. I mean, you've been interviewed, you testified, so there's quite a bit of public record out there about this, and as we were chatting before the podcast, at the same time, you've done a really good job of not allowing you know, this identity of you as a whistleblower in that context to, to define who you are or the work that you do, which you know, that befalls a lot of people who have the audacity or the courage to step out and you know, publicly denounce something that they see uh, that is you know, not so good.
0: Yeah, I, was, I, would, I think the I've handled it that way because I was keenly aware of what happens when your identity is like one thing because of my running. And I remember thinking about this before I blew the whistle is like, this is the thing, like this could completely define who you are and you'll have no control over it. And so I've tried to be like conscious and aware of that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it. I've tried to be intentional. Right,
1: so for people who who are perhaps not that familiar with what happened, maybe walk through the evolution around you becoming aware that you know, things were not as they seemed.
0: Yeah, so early on, as I said, I thought it was my dream job, but, and I think that's an important framing because when you go in with that mindset, what happens is you start to, like you look on the bright side of everything. So early on, I'd see some items that I was like, huh, that's kind of weird.
1: Like, what would be an example of that?
0: Very early on, like, I remember it was a couple months after I got there, and one of the athletes had to use some prescription drug after a race. And they had said it was asthma related, right? And then there was Alberto started freaking out because, it, well, This drug isn't allowed in competition and the athlete was about to race again Mm. days later. So I get the call from Alberto and he says, Steve, I need you to pick up a sample of pee from this athlete, fly it to Minnesota, drop it off and they're gonna test it to see if it contains the drug.
1: And this was to transpire days in advance of a certain race. Yes.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And he was like, if it doesn't, he'll race. If it does, he won't. We'll pull him out. And was that drug prescribed at the behest of Salazar? So, this is the other interesting part that I, I again realized kind of early on, but kind of excused away is that a lot of the doctors who helped the team and then Salazar who was in charge of it, the relationship was like almost intertwined where there's several cases where Alberto would be like, this athlete needs this, which was a prescription drug, which as a non-doctor, like he shouldn't be able to like, Mm -hmm. he's not a doctor, he can't do that. Or there'd be cases at the track where he'd be like, here, you need to take this. And then he'd hand someone a prescription bottle of someone else, or give someone else like a prescription inhaler that didn't belong to them, that wasn't prescribed to them. So it was like a bunch of this these things that push beyond like the normal like right. doctor patient, like, you know, workings.
1: And you're just making mental notes of these. Little incidents that are happening and you know out in the open, yeah, relatively within the within the ecosystem of this team,
0: right? And that and that's kind of what it was. And then I think the first time my alarm bell went off is I was looking through a scientific research report done by the the man who was a, formerly the head of the Nike Sports Science Lab, mm-hmm. and I'm just perusing through it. It's on like altitude training. And I see this the the doctor's notes, the scientist notes, and it it says under Galen Rupp's name, it says presently on testosterone medication. And as someone who's not esteemed and 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 not a doctor, but I know when testosterone medication comes in, I'm like You're like, huh? Huh, this is weird.
1: And so what do you do with that information?
0: I'll tell, you- I mean, initially I called my parents for advice. I'll be honest. Cause I was like, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. This is strange. Like I know testosterone is illegal. Like what do I do? And they're like, well, you gotta confront Alberto.
1: Right, maybe there's an exemptive use authorization here. You don't really know what you're dealing with at this point. Exactly.
0: So I like get up the courage cause Alberto's again, my boss, intimidating guy. And I'm just like talk myself through it, and I walk in there, and I'm just like, "Hey, Alberto, I need to ask you a question." And he like turns around in his his kind of desk, and he was like, "Okay, what is it, Steve? What is?" This? I was like, "I noticed this. Can you explain this?" And he goes, he kind of taken aback, and then he goes, "Oh, you know that Lauren Myrie, like he's he's crazy. He's died. He's losing his mind, like." I don't know what this note is. Like, I don't know. Like, you know, I'll you go take it down to the lab and see if they have an explanation. And go,
1: Lauren being the sports sports scientist. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And I take it down to the lab and they're like, I I mean, I can we can look through his old notes and see that. And I'm like, okay, I'd appreciate that. I just want to know. And that was that was the last I heard of it. Mm-hmm. Never got an answer. Right.
1: At some point. Alberto convinces you to hook yourself up to an L-carnitine IV drip for a four hour period. So help me understand this and, and why that was kind of a seminal moment in, in this process of wrapping your brain around what was actually happening.
0: So this, is, this was my biggest regret and it's still hard to like think about how, oh, I was this person who did this. And what it was was simple, is that Alberto had found some supplement that was made in the UK that had L-carnitine that you drank, but it took like three months to work Mm -hmm. because you needed enough to build up in the muscle. Well, Alberto was a very impatient person and we had people on the team who were getting ready for the Olympic trials and marathon. And he said, we don't have three months. We need to figure out a quicker way. And L-carnitine isn't a banned substance. Not a banned substance. But
1: administering it via IV is a dubious question mark. Yeah.
0: So what happened is the better way, which they concocted with scientists and the team doctor and all this stuff was, we're gonna inject it. So that's not like drinking the thing. It'll work pretty much right away. And then we'll be good and we'll do all this stuff. Well, it was, it was a procedure that hadn't, hadn't been done before mm-hmm. to my knowledge in this way, at least. So I get a call right before Thanksgiving, where Alberto says, Steve, do you feel like going home for, for Thanksgiving? I was like, yeah, I'd love to go home for Thanksgiving. I said, great, Dr. Brown, who was the team doctor lives in Houston. He was my personal doctor since the age of like 15. Uh huh. because he's in Houston and that's who I got referred to. So I'm like, okay. And he's like, we're gonna do this procedure on you to test if this works. And if it works, then we're gonna use it on all the athletes. And this is after the testosterone Galen Rupp thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. So at first I was like, this sounds really strange. I don't know about this. So I called Dr. Brown up again, my personal doctor, I said, is this safe and legal? And he said, yeah, it's safe. It's legal. We're gonna do it the right way. I'll take your blood and we'll make sure every, you're healthy. And I was like, I don't know about this. And he goes, it's safe. It's okay. And I just gave in. And I said, okay, mm-hmm. I'll do it. And it's hard in that moment, it's hard to look at myself and be like, what were you doing? Like, who are you? Like you wouldn't do, you wouldn't take it, sit there and take an injection for four hours in a doctor's office, but yet I did. And I think a lot of it was I so wanted this job to be real. I trusted the guy who was my personal physician to look out for my health. And then the other aspect of it, that I haven't really talked about, is that Alberto was really good at figuring out what athletes wanted or what people wanted and needed and then using that. So what, do I mean, what I mean by that for myself is, throughout my time there, he would bounce back and forth between, Steve, you're doing a phenomenal job. I'm gonna give you like a three-year contract and a huge raise. And I'd be like ecstatic, let's do it. Like, great, I'm gonna be, and then he'd be like, Steve, you're gonna be the next person who takes over after I retire in a couple of years. Mm. He's saying, this is yours. You're gonna be in charge of the best distance runners on the planet. Yeah, it's intoxicating. And I said- And you're like,
1: what, 25 at this point or something? 25. Yeah.
0: But then he would do the opposite every once in a while, where he'd say, Steve, I'm going to cut your 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 contract down. You're going to be six months. You got to prove yourself. And he'd go back and forth. And right before this L-carnitine thing, there was this period that went from the beginning and then through this, through the L-carnitine thing, where I didn't receive a paycheck for six months. How was that? I can't tell you how it occurred, but I had a contract with Nike, biggest you know, right? athletic company, but I didn't get paid for six months. And I'd ask Alberto and he'd be like, oh yeah, they're just going through details. We changed some content, some stuff. So it, it'll come through, it'll come through. And I'd be like, so I'd be like, okay, it'll come through. A month would, would go by, I'd ask again. And this went on until, you know, right before I left. And periodically he would be like, oh, Steve, do you need a loan? Mm. I'll give you a personal loan
1: to hold you through. All these mechanisms to create dependency and enhances ability to control you, which exactly. is really that abuse cycle. Like you have, you, you give the love and then you, with, you withhold it and you create a circumstance
0: where you're stuck. Exactly. And looking back, that's what I see now. When you're in it, sure, you yeah, can't you can, see it. You can't see it,
1: yeah. Yeah, that's heavy, man, that's heavy. I mean, clearly he must have had something to do with the withholding of your salary. Do There's, you think there was an intentional act on his part to, so that he could be the puppet master?
0: I think so. Mm-hmm.
1: And even also stepping back, identifying you with that decision to hire you. It's like, oh, this guy's bright and young, but also he doesn't know anything. Like I can control this guy. He can be my, you know, lieutenant and he's gonna do what I tell him to do. 100%
0: and you look at it also as their team doctor was my personal doctor. Right. So there's all these like things there where it's like, I used to think, as I said, at the beginning, I was like, oh, you identified me. I, I wrote something great, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is I was a young guy who hadn't had experience, who would see this as his dream job, who was admittedly a running nerd, right? Mm -hmm. Who fell short in his own career and has this opportunity. And he probably thought, I can manipulate the hell out of him, right?
1: We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut eye. And I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is gonna be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, Supportive. And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free eco rest pillows at birchliving.com/slash rich roll. That's 20% off and two free eco rest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed, gut health far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16 year old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue and it's been wonderful as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily personally for years. I love it, my body loves it. And right now for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer that's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try Waking Up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com richroll. So there you are back in Houston, hooking an IV up to your arm. Yeah. So explain what L-carnitine is and what it did to you.
0: So it's amino acid that essentially the research shows it, it helps us be more efficient in the fuel that we utilize. Mm-hmm. So simple terms, burn less carbohydrates so that you can save those in something like the marathon. So it makes a, a relatively, I mean, a big effect.
1: Right, and your experience personally after this four-hour drip, I mean, you, you said like you felt like superhuman.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I remember it is I, I did testing on the treadmill, like in the lab before and after my numbers shut up. And then just to see what happened, I got thrown in a workout with Dathan Ritzenine, one of the best, American males ever. And he's doing a, a long marathon pace tempo run at like five minute pace or faster. Mm-hmm. And I run 11 out of the, I think 14 miles with him. And I'm not compete like- Right, you're I'm coaching not, at this point. Yes, I'm not, I'm not in that shape. I went through 10 miles faster than I'd ever run 10 miles. Wow. And I felt fine. I could have, and I remember having this conversation because it was before the Olympic trials. I could have qualified for the Olympic trials, no question asked like the next day if I needed to. That's wild. So with that realization,
1: how do you arrive at this place where you, you're prepared to say something publicly or to report to somebody it, what you're seeing?
0: First, it took the guts to leave where I was like, this is crazy. I feel like, and I remember telling my parents this and they, I said, I feel like I'm in a cult because it's not just like these shady stuff over there. It's also like the shady stuff with like how they treated like Kara Goucher and Amy Bagley and all these others. And I was just like, this is manipulative as hell.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, because on top of that, anybody who listened to the episode I did with Mary Kane, yeah. she talks about, you know, the head game aspect of this, which is the other piece.
0: It, and that's, I remember this, this was right before I, I left, but I got pulled into a meeting and Alberto is going over athlete stuff. And he pulls out an athlete we're talking about is it. Alberto Darren Treasure, who was like called the sports psychologist and me. And they're going over the athletes. They pull out one athlete. And this athlete had just made their first world championship team. And he goes, she's too fat. Her butt's so big, she can't lift her legs. And on my head, I'm like, just made her first world championship team. Mm-hmm. Like she's PR and all left and right. And I'm, like, I'm like, okay, let me look at the data because that's who I am, a science data guy. I pull out the data, body fat testing using the gold standard like measurement. And it was something like, 10,
2: 11%,
0: which is about as low as you can get as a female. Mm -hmm. And I say, hey, here's the data, Alberto. Like, it's fine. You can't go any lower. And he turns to me and says, I don't give a damn what the science says. I know what I see with my eyes. She needs to lose weight. And then Darren, like, sees the controversy, butts in and is like, well, maybe instead of saying lose weight, why don't we give an example of, of what she should look like? And Darren goes, she should look like, how about Jenny Simpson? Who was at, at the time the world chick, like coming off being the world champion in the 1500. And Alberto goes, Jenny's too fat. Whoa. So in that moment, I knew no science matters. No data matters. Nothing else matters except the perception in Alberto's head. Mm-hmm. And as weird as it sounds, I remember thinking like, this is like, I can't do what I need to. I can't support this. I gotta get out of here.
1: Mm. Which is a pretty bold realization and move for somebody so young. And this is really your first job. You had to you know, imagine, is he gonna blackball me? Is this gonna prevent me from being able to go coach somewhere else? How did you like handle the
0: departure? I tried to handle it well. And initially it seemed like it was going well. We had a conversation. It was somewhat civil. It was like, okay, I'm not gonna hold you back. You're young. Like, just get out. That's fine. It's a great. A couple of days later, Alberto flips completely, gets angry, starts sending these emails, one of which literally threatens black, like blackballing, me, telling me, because I was like, he was like, what are you gonna do? I said, I think I'm gonna go coach in college. And he said, fine, great. A couple of days later, he says, Steve, remember that Nike sponsors the vast majority of college track teams, college sports teams. So keep that in mind on what you want me to say to them. Wow. The reign of terror. So... Like that's how it, it left. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: That's terrifying. So how do you you know, get the gumption to speak out? Was there some other incident or act that occurred that crossed the line enough where you were like, I can't, I can't sit on this information anymore?
0: I went home to Houston. I was fortunate. I got the college job, cross country job at Houston, which was my alum. So I knew the head coach, I knew it was gonna be fine, but I tried to put it behind me. I didn't wanna talk about it. I declined all interviews. I didn't wanna speak about it. I just wanted to move on. And that's what I tried to do. And I saw the Olympic games. I saw two Oregon project athletes go one, two. That was hard to watch because I knew behind the scenes what was going on. And then I saw that Alberto was in discussion with coaching this high school phenom named Mary Kane. And I remember at that time, no one, like the people who knew anything about it was essentially my, my family and my best friend. Mm-hmm. And I remember calling up my best friend and being like, was also ran in within college and said, this is gonna be an utter disaster. Because? Alberto treated grown women like shit. I couldn't imagine a high school kid going into that environment, having those expectations and being in that situation. In my head, I was like, I was 25. And it was, I couldn't handle that at all. And it was like the worst decision I ever made. This is gonna be an utter disaster. Which is exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. So off of that, I called USADA. Well, I, I I sent them an email, didn't tell anybody I was gonna do it. All my parents and they said, don't, you don't wanna whistle blow. They actually had a, a a Texas like judge, a well-known judge, call me up and, and walk me through what would happen most likely if I blew the whistle mm-hmm. and if I didn't. And he said, look, it's probably the right thing to blow the whistle, but I've been behind the bench for 30 years and this could potentially ruin your life and get no benefit or change out of this. <sighs> So no one right. wants with Nike
1: behind it, yes, and unlimited resources to just upend your life. Yep, and yet you still went through with it.
0: Yeah, it ate away at my soul. I tried to push it away. I tried to ignore it, but it just ate at me until the point I just remember thinking. Whatever happens, at least if nothing good comes out of this, at least people will know, and then they can make the decision that you didn't have that opportunity to make because you had no knowledge, there was nothing out there. Mm -hmm. So I wrote up an email in five minutes, hit send, and that started.
1: That basically said
0: what? It was like a two paragraph email that outlined Hey, I saw this document that said testosterone. I know they're doing L-carnitine injections. There's a lot of sketchy stuff going on. I suggest you investigate them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And who was that
1: email address to specifically? It was the- Just you you saw it like go to their
0: website. Oh yeah, wow. I went to their Uh website, they have a tip line and I, I just sent it in.
1: Yeah, and what's interesting is you had enough foreknowledge to know what you were getting into. It wasn't like a spontaneous, like I'm just gonna send this off and I'm not gonna worry about it. Like you knew that potentially there was a hurricane coming in your direction. So how long before this kicked
0: up a kerfuffle? So it started, it was behind the scenes, it was a lot. Because USADA would interview me and call me all the time and randomly and all this stuff. And then reporters at this time, within about six months, they're starting to kick the can. They're starting to call me, being like, hey, I'm here. Hearing- but they're
1: hearing it from somewhere else. Somewhere else. Yeah.
0: I'm hearing something, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And for the longest time, I just said, nope, nope, nope. I couldn't do anything. But I remember Dave Epstein called me. And this was after a year of kind of USADA. And USADA was interesting because it was like firestorm of activity, four months of nothing. Firestorm of activity, nothing. Mm -hmm. And Dave was the first person who I was like, okay, I'm gonna gonna talk to
1: Dave. He was with ProPublica at the time before all his books and all of that.
0: Yes. Yeah. So I started to tell Dave, He worked with the BBC. And that's when I knew they were like, hey, we have behind the scenes. They said, hey, we've got Kara Goucher, other people telling our story. And I hadn't talked to Kara. And I was intentional actually during the almost 10 years that this came out to really not talk to Kara. And I remember thinking, okay, if Kara's gonna like do this as well, then the story needs to be told. Mm-hmm. And that once it started going down this path and you was aware that I was talking to Epstein. Once it started going down this path, I knew that as soon as this came out, it was gonna be a firestorm. It was gonna be like, I had to be prepared and then Specifically, I remember being at a track meet, uh, a Diamond League track meet. So big time track meet. And in the warm-up area, because I was there with the athlete, Alberto comes around, comes up to me and says, Steve, did you see anything while you were here? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, Alberto. He's like, I'm hearing reports, like some rumblings of something. I said, I don't know what you're talking about, Alberto. And I just walked And I knew that I had to prepare for like the chaos that was coming. Mm -hmm.
1: In other words, he's telegraphing to you, I know what you're up to, just so you know, I know. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. Right, and how long before the press really cottons onto this and the big stories break? Or did that happen with the, the legal proceedings?
0: So it happened, I think the, I think I blew the whistle at the end of 2012 and then somewhere in around 2014, 2015 is when it all blew up in the mm-hmm. press.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that was when the the chaos started. But before that, like, I didn't know what was gonna happen. It had to be terrifying. It, it I had to come to terms with that I would never work in running and never coach again. That's what I had to wrap my head around.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And we, we talked at the beginning, I've had four books. The first book, Science of Running, which was self-published. I put it out there right before the original like piece was supposed to come out. Mm -hmm. As a prophylactic,
1: like just so you know, before I head into this, I actually know what I'm talking about with running and maybe there'd be some kind of insurance policy for your career. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So that I had something else financially, expertise wise, something else that I was like, okay, if this all goes to hell in a handbasket, basket, I'll be okay for a while to figure out what the next path is. Mm -hmm. How bad did it get? I mean,
1: did you, were, did they have people following you? Were they digging up, trying to dig up dirt on you and publishing false accounts in the press of who you were? Like, what was your lived experience
0: of that period? I mean, it was, uh, I had to get off the internet, which is much harder than you realize it, yeah. it is <laughs> in the modern world. Uh-huh. But it was driving me nuts because, yeah, there'd be a bunch You're getting of getting dragged, getting dragged in yeah. the press. Getting dragged, wherever. I'd show up to track meets and and literally other coaches would be like, Hey Steve, like good to see you, but I don't want to be near you. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like the ostracized like person over in the corner because Nike's the biggest thing in track and field. Right. And it was, I mean, at that I had the the FBI show up at my house. I had reporters literally stalk me at my house and at my work. Oh, it's so crazy.
1: All leading up to, of course, this pinnacle moment of you testifying with Alberto sitting right there.
0: It's the, the hardest thing I've ever done was not blowing the whistle. It was sitting there in that room. It, I never, I thought I knew kind of what a panic attack was, but I didn't know until experiencing that because I remember sitting there being like, oh my dear Lord, like I'm about to like have to share everything, get grilled, et cetera. They're gonna try and tear me apart. And it was nerve wracking. Like I'm an introvert by nature. Mm -hmm. I, I like to write. I don't like, I do get up and talk, but it's not my thing. So- it was the worst experience of my life. I wouldn't wish anybody else to have that. Yeah, to have
1: him sitting there. I mean, was he just steely eyeing you the whole time? And and what was the experience of being cross-examined in that context?
0: Well, horrible. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, they're just staring you down and trying to like poke any sort of hole twist, any sort of thing you've done or said at any moment in basically, the history of your your life, right it's throwing whatever sticks at the wall, and here you are in your head, you're like that didn't happen like what in the world are you talking about mm-hmm. like this is b s but like you all you can do is say that, and they try and confuse everything because you gotta remember at the time of this stuff, it's, it's all stuff that happened five, six, seven, you know, by the end of it, nine years ago, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you
1: only actually saw a couple of incidents, right? So it's not like you were you know, down in the basement with whatever doctor he was working with and really had you know, hands-on firsthand accounts of all kinds of stuff. So it's, you could see how they could pick that apart and create
0: doubt. Exactly, it's not like I had the smoking gun where I saw someone like inject themselves with a steroid Mm -hmm. and took a picture of it. Like I I didn't do that. So because it was so nuanced and because again, you're looking at people in the panel who maybe don't have the expertise to understand what high level sport and the science behind it and all this stuff. And what is illegal and what isn't. I, exactly, and what's normal and what's not normal in sport. Mm-hmm. you know, And in that, that was really hard because I'm sitting here being like, no, you guys like, this is crazy. This is not normal. Like this doesn't occur anywhere else, but like to convey that is something else. Right,
1: well, you did the thing and what happened happened. And in the wake of that, have you had any direct Correspondence with Salazar? Like, has he reached out to you? Has he tried to contact you? No. No, Mm -hmm.
0: no. I mean, those guys never.
1: And what about when you bump, bump into Nike people at track meets and things
0: like that? I mean, before all the verdicts came, they'd try and intimidate me.
1: Yeah, but have they cleaned house since then? So it's new and different people?
0: They have for the most part. Not entirely, but a lot of them uh-huh. are different and gone. So it's 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 just strange, yeah. honestly. Because yeah. in my head, I'm sitting there being like, look, I'm not trying to ruin anyone's life or do anything. Like, I'm just telling you what I saw.
1: Uh-huh. Right. And with that, having had that experience and then coaching at the elite, you know, collegiate level. And being at all these meets and knowing these athletes firsthand, when you're watching the Olympic trials or some big track meet and you see exceptional performances, like what goes on in your mind? Like we all wanna believe that sport is clean, but you knowing better than anyone, like what constitutes a legitimate breakthrough versus an enhanced breakthrough? Like, are you cynical? Like how do you, what is your lens on? you know, on sport, not just in track and field, but like, you know, we could talk about psych, we could talk about yeah. any of the sports in which this is rampant and there's been controversies.
0: For a while, I was very cynical. And I realized that it was killing my love of something that I really enjoy doing, participating mm-hmm. in, helping out in. And where I've come to now is, I cheer on the folks and the coaches and the athletes who I feel really good about, who I think are doing things the right way. And I can get maybe not to 100% certainty, Mm -hmm. but I can get close. And those are the people I watch, I cheer for, et cetera. If you're not in that group, you set a record, I don't care.
1: Right. And I'm not going to ask you to name those people, but (laughs) clearly I can tell there's certain individuals where you're like, okay, right? Yeah. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's hard. It's with that, it has to be, I mean, it's a choice, but it still has to be a challenge for
0: you to remain enthusiastic about the sport. It does. And the, you know, the hardest part to me though is that, There were a lot of people, I kind of thought maybe this was naive. I thought, okay, I'm gonna blow the whistle. People will see all this. If it comes out, the verdict did in in the favor of we were telling the truth that, well, people would see and they'd have like ethics and morals and back the good side and Mm -hmm. like, but you still see people who go to like, train with similar athletes or coaches as we're part of the Oregon project, or like, you know, kind of mesh in that environment. And in my head, I'm like, guys, you know, you've heard my story. You've seen the report. You've seen what Mary Kane went through and Kara Goucher. Mm -hmm. And there are people like, ah, like, oh no. Like, even though you're like a coach and athlete at the time, like, I don't care. like we'll just blow this off and that that drives me nuts.
1: Right, but you can also have compassion for them. They're young people yeah. who are trying to have a professional career in a sport where there's very little money. And there is still a level of prestige attached to Nike and Oregon and all of that. And, you know, far be it from us to judge somebody who who kind of needs that in their life and, you know, has to find some way to look past, past transgressions, you know, for the sake of, their future career
0: i I a hundred percent get that and i think what it tells me or what i've realized is that i was very it, it, we all come at it from like a naive perspective and you tend to think like ethics and morals and all those things are like hard-grained like in you and what mm-hmm. have you but what i've realized is environment impacts you more than you realize more than we account for so i don't I try my best not to blame people, not to be like, oh, why are you doing that? Mm -hmm. Why did you choose that decision?
1: Right, but you can reflect on your own decisions and why you made them at that
0: time. And
1: you know that I'm sure allows you to better understand. Exactly.
0: So Mm -hmm. I, I try to have nuance there where it's like, the world is not good and evil. It's not black and white. We're all capable of all sorts of good and bad decisions. And that's, just reality. Right. And I would
1: imagine in the way that you look back on that 401 mile and, and your inability to, to break that barrier as a gift that allowed you to become something greater, you can reflect back on that experience at Oregon Project and think, but not for that, you would have become the coach that you became at Houston. Like you, you could have just remained under Salazar's wing forever and never fully developed your own identity as a head coach.
0: It, 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 it shaped how I see not only like coaching, but also life.
1: Yeah, like what is really important here?
0: Exactly. If you ask 25 year old Steve, he would say, oh, like Olympic medals, running around really fast in ovals. Mm-hmm. If you ask me after this <laughs> experience, it's no, it's I want healthy, happy, human beings who can use sport as a way to challenge and push boundaries and like find themselves and like struggle and all those things. But we can do it in a way that like makes them grow as individuals and if Mm -hmm. we do that, like who cares if you run 401 or 355.
1: Right, and that mission statement then begets all these questions. Well, if that's the priority, how do we make healthy, happy athletes who can thrive in a sustainable way? Hence all of these books that you've written and all the research that you've done and all of that, which is, you know, fundamentally why we're here today. Like I didn't know we were gonna spend a whole hour on <laughs> Nike Oregon Project, but thank you for for being so candorous about that because I think there is still this You know, it's it's interesting. We were talking before the podcast, like it's the story that doesn't go away. Like even though you're like 2012, but yet we're still talking about this because it kind of continues to evolve. And it also is a basis point for how we think about other controversies that are similar or analogous and it like won't leave you on some level despite your desire to put it in the rearview mirror but i appreciate you you know being open about it but let's turn this to to the new book do hard things and kind of what you're you know really interested in which is this idea of how do we cultivate not just great athletes who are resilient and you know capable of optimizing performance but Ultimately, you know, good human beings and the principles that you've learned as a coach that translate into the workplace and into our personal lives, et cetera. So um, maybe a good place to start while we're on the subject of running and the 401 mile is, is really what, what appears to be an impetus for this book, which is this other mile that you were running where you had this vocal cord incident that, you know, made you rethink you know, your approach to stress and your approach to toughness in general.
0: Yeah, yeah. So this happened when I was in college. I was, I was in the middle of a, uh, a mile at, uh, at Cal Berkeley, running against some really good runners, trying to break the four minute barrier, was running really well. And then all of a sudden after three laps or so, I couldn't breathe. And when I say I couldn't breathe, like I literally could not get air in. Mm-hmm. And it sent me like, what in the hell's going on? I collapse on the ground. You know, I'm trying to figure out how to breathe. A and bitch, the way you
1: describe it, sorry to yeah. step over your words, but the way you describe it is it's not that you were out of your, your depth in terms of exertion, like you were pacing yourself and you felt like you were you know, hitting the mark that you needed to hit at that stage of the race. I think you had a lap and a half left or something like that. And you're like, I'm right where I need to be. So it wasn't like, oh, I've just overexerted myself or mis- misjudged my pace. It was something altogether different.
0: Yes. It was as if someone had like, you know, shoved something down my throat and I was choking. That's the best way I can describe it. Not mm-hmm. like there was just nothing that could get in or out of that passageway. And what it turned out to be after a lot of testing is is that it was this thing called vocal cord dysfunction, which is essentially what happens. Some or what normally happens is, you know, your vocal cords open when you breathe and shut when you don't, and they just kind of go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, For whatever reason, my vocal cords almost flipped, where the stress signal told them to shut when they should be opened. And it's this really weird kind of disorder that is more common than we think, but it often gets confused with asthma, even though it's like the opposite effect. So what happens and what the research tells you is that it generally happens in driven perfectionist type individuals, who for whatever reason have some sort of trigger that like just almost makes the brain go haywire and have this opposite reaction. And what I had to learn to do from that is I was so accustomed to being like, well, how do you handle pain? You just push through, you dig deeper, you like grit your teeth and like put your head down and Mm -hmm. like go and push for it. And that would no longer work because if I did anything that caused any sort of anxiousness or tension in me, that became a trigger for my vocal cords literally shutting. And then I'd have to drop out and figure out how to breathe again.
1: Right, so you're forced into this situation where you have to figure out a different way to avoid that response, which is gonna require an antithetical relationship with pushing through pain. And more of a Eastern philosophical you know kind of letting go surrender mindfulness you know driven relationship with sport in order to avoid having that kind of an incident
0: exactly, and for someone who grew up again in the south around <laughs> like football and sport, that Eastern philosophy <laughs> didn't come naturally yeah
1: well it's just it's not even like part of the parlance and you get into this in the book around kind of our unhealthy but you know conventional ideas around what it means to be tough in sport and these legendary stories of these mythic you know coach figures and athlete figures that have cemented this notion in our consciousness to the point where we don't even question it
0: yeah it it, it's kind Mm. of wild it's like I like to think like every society has their, and culture has their kind of like master narratives. In the US it's like, oh, the American dream, like do all this thing. In sport in toughness in military and all this stuff, the master narrative is one of like push through, Mm -hmm. ignore the pain, like don't cry, don't show any emotions. Whatever
1: doesn't kill you makes you stronger.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: And you have story after story after story. And what's interesting is you deconstruct these, like beginning with Bear Bryant and him arriving at Texas A&M and this legendary you know, fable around how he pushed these kids in their summer training camp leading into the fall uh, where, to the point where like most of them quit Right, but then two years later, they become this reigning champion team, and the kind of mythos of Bear Bryant is born. And when you deconstruct it, you realize, well, this is all horseshit. Like this isn't even actually what happened.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that that was one of my favorite. My yeah. wife, my wife might actually be upset with me because she's an A&, Texas A&M grad, so it's like part of uh-huh. their mythos. But. Uh, that, that was, you know, it's famous, especially in Texas. Like Junction Boys is what it's called. Like go to the camp, do all this crazy stuff. This is how they got better. This is how they became, you know, the team that was legendary. And the reality is the year they go to the camp, they do all this crazy stuff. They went one in nine. Mm-hmm. The year they were good, only a handful of the players were actually left. What had happened is they'd gotten better players how Brian admitted himself like they paid to recruit better players to Texas A&M but also the marketing hype
1: of that story made it attractive exactly. right so you can you can create you know uh, this magnetic field out of this legend um but the truth of it was that like a lot of the like the freshmen by the time they were seniors weren't even, who who had been there during that period of time the stars opted out of the camp <laughs> And some of the guys that quit the camp ended up being superstars in other fields, like they were amazing individuals had they been sort of mentored, you know, in a a healthier, more appropriate way.
0: Exactly. And I think that's what you see so much is that when we do things like, you know, throw people into the, the deep end and see if they survive, we lose so many good candidates. We're not developing people. Mm-hmm. And this is where it also ties into the military because people have taken it from there as they say, right. oh, the Navy SEAL's Hell Week. They go through all this this crazy stuff. That's a sorting exercise. That's not a development exercise.
1: So explain the difference between those two things.
0: So sorting is is pretty simple. Is they're just trying to see, okay, can you go through this rigors so that we can select you to see if you can like handle this job. Mm -hmm. So they're simulating. It's it's,
1: it's literally the initial litmus test to see if you're even a candidate to be developed into what ultimately could be an AVCL.
0: It's like taking the SAT, Mm -hmm. right? We're gonna create some sort of barrier and this will help us, right? But we mistook it and we took it as the development method, which if you go like people, coaches, parents, whoever, they think, oh. Well, the, the, the way to develop discipline and toughness is take the Navy SEALs method, which is put people through some really difficult things, like, and then they'll get really tough. No, that's not what the Navy SEALs even do. Mm-hmm. If they're talking about developing toughness, they focus on more of what I'd call that Eastern side, as you mentioned earlier, which is like, hey, we've gotta, we've gotta create space. Mm-hmm. We've gotta develop the mental skills I talked to a a really good um, athlete, former college athlete of mine who went on into the military and now is trying for the special forces. And he put it pretty succinctly. It was like, Steve, before we go out and do all the crazy stuff, like the survival training that we're, we're doing, we sit in a classroom we go, we have lecture after lecture, PowerPoint after PowerPoint. I've got a 600 page book filled with telling me how, what to do mentally and physically to handle whatever situation I'm coming at. And I have to learn and understand that. Yeah. And it's only after I learn those skills. That I'm then put in a place that simulates what I'll feel like and experience, so that I can try those skills out.
1: Right, to see if you're able to access that skill set under pressure
0: and duress. Exactly. Yeah,
1: what's fascinating is how much the military gets right about this because it does dispel that that kind of mythic notion of weeding out the weak and you know the toughest will survive, and how um, kind of rooted in science and how. Um, kind of mature and and well thought out it is. Like it is this blueprint where they've poured a ton of research and 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 money and resources into trying to figure out how do you develop these skills that are so critical to having a robust defense, right? That is so different than what we think. And it it reminds me of the um I did a podcast with this guy Rich Deviney, who was, you know, basically training Navy SEALs. And he, you know, echoed the same thing. It's like, it's all about developing mental resilience. Like the, those other things are just tests and they get a lot of press and they're fun to talk about, but the truth is much more complicated and nuanced and has to do with psychology and how do you inherently motivate somebody and and you know develop a team approach to problem solving and all this kind of thing.
0: You know, I, I think the way I like to think of it is the public image is stuck in the 1940s military mm-hmm. and the actual military, is like the nation's largest, you know, employer of sports psychologists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's true, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because they're they're just like, no, we have to figure this out, and rightfully so. Because if you look at their own research, when like new you know, soldiers, special forces, like guys who have already passed the test come in, something like 94% of them experience disassociation. During simulated like survival training, right? Which is disassociation is when your mind is kind of like slows down, cuts off, doesn't see reality for reality, you know, the fog of war. So they, they see that and they're like, yeah, we got to get this right. Right.
1: We need to understand how to prevent that from happening. How can we create soldiers? who won't disassociate and are able to maintain their ability to think clearly and respond rather than react when they're in those very challenging circumstances. Exactly. Which is exactly what you want out of athletes. That's exactly what you wanna be able, the way you wanna be able to comport yourself in other
0: areas of your life where you're gonna meet obstacles and duress. You know, and I think this is an important point is, it's not just athletes, it's just not just soldiers, all of us need to be able to respond and not react in our daily lives. You know, how we handle parenting, how we handle leading, how we handle inevitable arguments with our spouse or children. Like it's, we've all lost our mind at some point. Mm -hmm. But if you have the ability to respond and not just lash out, you're gonna have a better outcome and a better decision from it.
1: so you explore this in the book and what's what's great about it is you do it from the perspective of the athlete or the individual like here's how you can develop these capacities but also from the perspective of the coach or the mentor or the leader who's charged with responsibility for cultivating that in people that they're collaborating with
0: yeah and i think that the most interesting part on all of this is you know i love the individual aspect but on the team aspect or the organization or the cultural aspect, the same thing applies because it's like, again, we hold on to this idea of like, oh, we want to create like resilient, disciplined people. We got to be like hard asses on yeah. them. And it's the exact opposite. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. it's very counterintuitive. I mean, you, you, know, you talk about Bobby Knight, he's like, these people get a lot of attention. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, and so what happens is we start to think that that's the appropriate or correct yeah. way to approach it. I mean, my, my collegiate swimming coach, I've told the story before, I can't remember whether I told it with you guys last time you were on, but he was a, he was a Marine sniper in Vietnam. He was a hard ass and he you know definitely came from some version of the Bobby Knight school and he would say he said to me one time like i was becoming very dispirited as a member of this team and i was not putting points up on the board like i was meaningless in the in the you know equation of whether we were going to win an nc2a championship but i loved being on the team and my teammates were very important to me and i saw a situation in which he was leading from a perspective of negativity and fear and He called me into his office one day because he could tell I was not happy with the speech that he had just given, and and he just you know he wanted to know how I felt, and I just said, look, I you know I I came up with a coach who was positive and empowering, and I'm not used to this style of coaching, and he just said to me, if it takes this team hating me to win, then that's what we're going to do, and I just thought to myself, I'm not interested in in being on that team, (laughs) you know. And he had successful results. So as long as you're winning, you, know, you, can, you can like rationalize that type of behavior, but ultimately it's not sustainable and you're not gonna attract that kind of talent and great talent is not gonna wanna be tutored under that type of regime.
0: Yeah, you know, fear is like lighter fluid. It looks really good. It looks like it works. But it like burns out, right?
1: And and it and it may work in the short term, yes. Because you're running out. Because fear is a very you know is a is a is a solid energy source. It just it just burns out quickly.
0: Yes, I mean Mm -hmm. it's it's our kind of most basic you know motivator. But it's what is it meant to do? It's meant to like get you to run away from the lion. Mm -hmm. It's not to sustain you over the long haul. Right, (laughs) right, right, right.
1: So let's let's move from this wrongheaded idea around leadership and toughness into what you discovered as a result of, of reading this book. I mean, the book, first of all, it's I haven't said this yet, but it's fantastic. I think it's a, an, an amazing resource. Clearly you put a ton, I, I mean, I don't know how you found the time to do all the research in this book because there's hundreds of stories and anecdotes from historical figures. And of course, all the kind of, research, scientific research that validates like this new perspective on how we should think about being tough, how to motivate ourselves and motivate the people, you know, in our charge.
0: Yeah, you know, um, I love the research. So if it was up to me, it would probably be even more of that. Mm-hmm. But like, I gotta tell the story to, to mm-hmm. keep it interesting, but I try to balance that out. But you know, it's, it's no different than in my own running world is like, if I'm gonna go at something, I'm gonna go at it hard. So right. in this, like I wanted to be right. And when I'm making a claim that says, hey, like all these ideas you thought were, were correct, maybe reevaluate it, I better come at you with like enough evidence.
1: Yeah, you of course are aware that there's some kind of ironic joke built into that, right? Like the, the, this is the no pain, no gain, yeah. you know, like I'm just gonna overtrain this book <laughs> until, it, until it
0: finally exists. Yeah, no, I'm as, I'm, as
1: I'm, I'm dying on the you know, writing I'm, the acknowledgments at uh, the uh, end uh, 100%. 100%. <laughs>
0: that's that's where friends and colleagues are uh-huh. and family are to pull me back from the brink,
1: right? So it's all premised on these four pillars. So maybe we can kind of you know walk through what those are and and you know why how you kind of came to think about resilience and are you using toughness and resilience somewhat interchangeably here? Yeah, as you know, the pillars of like
0: how to embody this quality. Sure. So I I think, you know, the first one that I came with is that you kind of have to embrace reality. And what does embrace reality Mm -hmm. mean? It's like false bravado looks good, but it fails because like, you need to have expectations in reality match up enough. So if I go into a marathon and I say, oh, I've got this, this is no big deal, etc., Whenever the, the pain actually hits, my brain's gonna freak out. Right, and you're gonna completely fall apart. Exactly. So it, it's like coming to terms with, it's okay to understand these are the demands of the event. This is what I'm currently capable of. And if you can do that and have the overlap there, Mm -hmm. you're gonna be in a much better place than if you had like bravado or whatever have you.
1: Right, or the insecurity of like, this is gonna be a disaster and not acknowledging that you actually did a lot of work in preparing for this. So there's a sweet spot in there And amidst all of that, you do have to have room to reach. Like, okay, here's my reality. I know the training I put into it. I know I have an objective appraisal of how difficult this challenge is going to be. And then I still have to have permission to reach a little bit beyond that, right? Because this is the goal. Like we're, we're all trying to exceed what we think we're capable of doing, right? So how do those two things like Work with
0: each other. I like to see it. I'm gonna use historical example here. If you look at Abraham Lincoln, he had what I'd call tragic optimism in the sense that he was, you read his speeches, he was so optimistic for the future. We're gonna get this done. We're gonna free slaves. Like we're gonna change the country. We're gonna get through this. But in the day to day, in the war. Despair. Despair. Yeah. And I'm not saying you need to take it to that extreme, but that's how I kind of see this This embracing reality is you need to have hope for the future. You need to say, I'm gonna stretch, I'm capable of of more, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But in the here and now you gotta have it kind of overlap where it's like, what am I facing? What do I have to do? What do I need to get through this period?
1: Mm-hmm. Because as you say, in this section, when you place yourself into that stressful situation, you will be exposed, like your mask will come off, right? So, so the more you've embraced the reality of what you're actually involved in, the less impact that stress will have on exposing your weaknesses because you've kind of appropriately prepared for that.
0: Yeah, you come to terms with mm-hmm. it. And biologically what happens is anytime our brain is kind of caught off guard, we tend to have a threat response because your brain wants you to survive, right? Mm -hmm. Anytime we're like prepared and it's kind of within our reach, we have a challenge response, which is more kind of testosterone adrenaline driven instead of cortisol threat driven. Mm -hmm. So, when we look at, uh, when we think of like toughness, we often think of like, oh, just fake it, like put on a mask and you'll be good. But once that's exposed, like your brain's gonna jump to that freak out moment where it's like, oh crap, sound alarm, like get out of here, escape, flight, don't take things on because like we're not capable.
1: Right, so an example would be in an Ironman when somebody's leading on the bike and they get a flat, right? And then they, they're all pissed off <clears throat> and they're throwing their bike and throwing a tantrum and they look, they look tough because they're doing that, but actually that's weakness because they haven't prepared for that variable. And when it occurred, the stress reaction was to just like lose your mind or, you know, in a tennis match and you're throwing chairs because of a bad call or something like that.
0: Yeah, and that's how most of these things happen is like from the from the external side, it might look tough or it might look like you care, right? And like, oh, look how pissed off he is. Mm-hmm. Like he cares about his performance. But to me, like it's the opposite. It's like, well, you're just kind of sabotaging yourself. You're not prepared for the moment. You're not figuring your way through this stuff. And I, I think you can almost summarize the biology or the neuroscience of, of toughness down to, like we talked earlier about, can you keep your mind steady, no matter what kind of chaos is going on around you? Mm-hmm. Can you keep your mind from defaulting towards that freak out reactive state, or can you keep you know, yourself online, rational, ability to work through things? and in the heat of the moment the competitiveness like often what happens is we default to that freak out because it's like almost overwhelming it's this like emotional charge behind
2: it mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: and embracing
1: reality is you know that's a that's a piece here there's so many other things yeah. that you have to practice in order to maintain your level of composure under that kind of stress but a lot of it in my mind has to do with This distinction that you alluded to, which is the the difference between kind of bravado, false bravado versus real confidence, which is which is earned and experience based.
0: Confidence needs evidence. You know, Mm -hmm. it it, that's how you feed it. In my generation, I think we really screwed this up because we had this huge self esteem movement. Yeah, and I remember elementary school, junior high. It's like you know, you just get told you're great. But what the science actually shows is this is that you know, we don't get that like testosterone bump of like confidence unless we've done something to earn it. What a shocking
1: thing to say. How dare you?
0: <laughs> You're going to get canceled for that statement, Steve. You know that, right? <laughs> probably. <laughs> probably. But but I I I I think this is like it's it's so central to things because like we get told the wrong idea so much. And instead like we need to do the work and it's not that you have a certainty about it, Mm -hmm. but it's to know that, hey, I've prepared. Like I've put in the work, I've been consistent. Like my brain knows that I'm at least maybe not gonna fall apart if I enter the arena. Right, and how do you think
1: about the difference between extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation and rewards in the context of developing a healthy confidence.
0: Yeah, so if you look at it, we're human beings. We're always gonna have both, okay? But what you would like to have is the majority of your motivation should come from intrinsic, from the inside. It should be something that brings you joy, like love, all of that good stuff. Mm -hmm. If too much is on the outside, the external, it's kind of like that fear almost in that same response. It can work for a little bit and it tends to work for what I'd call easy things. So extrinsic works for like, hey, you know, am I gonna get my kid to, I don't know, mow the grass? Sure, it'll work for that moment to get mm-hmm. them to mow the grass, but it won't teach them that this needs to be something how to be, that you do. How to, be,
1: how, to, how to make that motivation self-generated. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And
0: I think that's the key is like, yes, every once in a while, you have to do rewards and all that stuff. But the ultimate goal is how do I take that and make it self-generated? Right. And if you can do that, you set yourself up to being able to do really hard things and be able to persist and enjoy it over the long haul.
1: Right, an example that comes to mind that has a lot to do with embracing reality and, and where from whence your motivation comes is the situation where Take for example, you know, an objective sport where you're being measured with a clock, like track and field, in my case, swimming. You were somebody who at ninth grade, you had this you know, amazing breakthrough and then you just got faster and faster and faster and faster and then you plateau, right? If you want any longevity in sport, like this is in swimming, you can't, when you go to workout and you're doing your intervals and you're looking at the pace clock, Early on, you're seeing improvement weekly or monthly, and it's very encouraging. So I suppose that's an extrinsic motivator, like I'm on the right path, but at some point, as every athlete will tell you, like this stuff starts to plane out and you can't just go into workout every day expecting to be faster than you were last week. Like you're just, you'll go insane. And that leads to kind of what you talked about, which is like, well, I just gotta work harder. And I've just got, now I, do, I need to double my workload because I'm, I need to have that validation to know that I'm on the right path. So at some point you have to figure out a different relationship with how you're thinking about your progress and your improvement and your trajectory. Otherwise, you're going to you're going to injure yourself or overtrain or burn out and quit the sport.
0: Yeah. And, a lot and you must
1: see this with your athletes all the time, right? Oh yeah. 100%. Yeah.
0: I mean, this is why I think young like with with if you're a parent, if you're a coach of high school kids or youth athletes, your most important job is not to get them faster or have them you know, do better or higher grades or whatever have you, is to develop the joy of whatever pursuits they're doing. Give them the inner drive and develop that over the long haul. And if you can do that, like the rest takes care of itself. Mm-hmm. If they actually love the
1: endeavor and the process that will, supersede those short-term kind of dopamine hits about where you're at.
0: And and if you look at actually the research behind prodigies or phenoms and a wide variety from sports to academics to chess, the ones who make it are the ones who have higher levels of internal drive. Mm. The ones who don't make it, there's some fascinating research on this, that don't make it are often the ones that started out internally driven because they're really good at something early on but then because of success, fame, pressure, parental pressure and expectations, coaching expectations that your internal drive slowly shifted.
1: Right, and the external is so heavy, right? It becomes an impossible responsibility to bear.
0: It becomes a burden. Yeah. And what happens over the long haul is if that becomes a burden, then now you're playing not to lose. Right. You're playing mm. like prevent defense, fear, ba- fear based, fear yeah. based, instead of like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to see what's going to happen. And uh, honestly, from my own experience as well, is, you know, when I was chasing trying to run under four minutes for a mile, over time, it inevitably became like, Oh, like there's the clock. Like, am I on pace or am I yeah. off? Am I on pace or am I off? And the moment you're off, Like it's like your brain goes up, shut it down. Like we're done, like stop competing. It's not worth it anymore. And that just becomes an instinctual reaction because you've trained it for so long that this number is what defines me. Mm -hmm. And that number could be in athletics or it could be your grades or your bank account or your fans or the number of Twitter followers. It becomes your higher power. Exactly. you become a slave to it, yep. right?
1: Which, which of course begs the question I have to ask you, which is, I know you still run, but why don't you run competitively? Like you could go out there and just kill it in whatever, you know, in the mile, in the marathon, in the half marathon, if you should choose to do so. So clearly there's an intentional, uh, you know, thought behind why you're not doing that. It, Especially as somebody who didn't achieve their goal, like those are the people who end up, turning into rabid masters athletes because they, you know, they feel like they, you know, I certainly part of my motivation, like they didn't didn't achieve the thing they thought they could back in the day.
0: Yeah, no, 100%, it's very intentional. It's because I know that if I go down that path, who I'm gonna be.
1: Uh Uh-huh, but isn't there an opportunity, especially if you read your own book, to reframe that and develop a healthy relationship where it's driven by, things like joy and just self discovery
0: but what if i ha- i have that i have that <laughs> yeah. right now okay and i think what i'm learning to do is i i run every day uh-huh i just don't train hard but what i'm learning to do is experience what i get out of running which for me is about once a week i do a hardish workout and mm-hmm. then about once a month i run something pretty dang hard. There's no measure. Mm -hmm. There's no like, I'm gonna go run a 5K and try and break this time. It's I'm just trying to experience like the discomfort and see if I can get through it Uh and see what that feels like. And there isn't just a little bit of like fear of like, why not
1: just show up at the 10K?
0: So um, the turkey trot. Our, our you know? mutual friend and my for, my co-author on some of these books, Brad, yeah. always bothers me. About yeah. This. Well, Brad asked me to ask you this. That, that you know, yeah. this is not not surprising. <laughs> but I I don't because I'm in a good spot with running. I I enjoy it. I love getting out there. I love just kind of experiencing it and not having any burdens whatsoever. Mm. And I think for so much of my life, there was a time, there was a clock, there was a race, there was a competition, there was this and expectations. That not having those and just getting to experience it, it almost takes me back to like the early days. Yeah, where I'm just kind of clueless. And I get just it. Like,
1: yeah. no, I get it. That's cool. That's I I I I completely get that. Like, I I don't want to ever swim in an indoor pool again. Like, because it just brings up like I did that. You know, I don't want to wake up in the dark to go to the pool. Like, I did that. Like, I do it because it's fun and I enjoy it and. I like being out you know, in the, under the sun and all that kind of stuff. And, but I'm still competitive, you know, so there isn't a little, and, and, and like having something on the calendar just gives it a little bit more mm-hmm. structure. But then it does become a thing of like, remember you're doing this for the joy, like who cares about the other stuff?
0: Yeah, you know, who knows, you know. I'm, I'm getting up to 40. So maybe once the masters kick in it'll, uh-huh. it'll rejuvenate my career and, <laughs> and you'll see me out there yeah. <laughs> cranking with everybody else. But. I do
1: think if you're being honest, something perhaps you're shrouding or to look at, and maybe I'm completely off base is a fear that you have that if you were to, to dip your toe back into it, that knowing yourself it could become all consuming and a distraction from the things that you currently care about.
0: I, I, yeah. But, no, the, I,
1: but that is the opportunity for growth, also. Can you go back into it and not succumb to that?
0: I think you're 100% yeah. correct. I mean, I think that's in there because, like, again, it was so much part of my identity, right? And so much of who I was or am that, of course, there's that fear of, like, well, what would happen if I just like started training a lot? Mm-hmm. Would I go down that path where I was kind of obsessive about it? Mm-hmm. And I like to think of like, of course not, like I'm I'm older, I'm wise. Right, well, there's a little denial there,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Cause you're like, yeah, that might happen. So I'm just gonna pretend that doesn't exist and tell everyone that I'm really happy in my life and I do it for the joy. When it, in truth, there's like a a weird dark shadow over here that as long as you don't go there, you don't really have to, you don't have to reckon with it.
0: Yeah. No. Yeah. I. 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 100. <laughs> okay. I 100 agree. Okay. I think there, there's definitely that there.
1: Um, well, let's let's move to the the um, the second pillar, which is which is all about listening to your body. I love this one.
0: Yeah. So I think this is this is again one of those really important ones that we get backwards because we often get told like, hey, you know, ignore your feelings, et cetera, et cetera. But if you look at the science and the research your feelings and emotions are almost like a messaging system. Mm -hmm. It tells us what's going on inside because there's no other way to like communicate that from like our muscles, brain, et cetera, to our conscious awareness. So our feelings and emotions kind of send that signal and give us something to do. But the key here is we gotta be able to like communicate with it, we gotta Mm -hmm. be able to speak its language. And the athlete example I like to give, which we all understand is that as an athlete early on, you have to you have to learn what is a pain that signals injury and what is a pain that signals, oh, that's just like some soreness and it'll go away and I'll be all right. Mm-hmm. The same thing applies to every other kind of emotion and feeling. And my wife is an elementary school teacher and she conveyed this great story that she said, you know, her kids who are throwing tantrums always like describe them with like a singular emotion. And it's very simple. It's like, I'm sad, right? Uh Why? Because they don't have the vocabulary or the understanding to break apart what that sadness is, whether it was frustration, whether it was insecurity driven, whatever it has, this myriad of things they have to grow and develop that vocabulary to give them context. And if they do that, then they can handle it. When it's just like all these billions of you know emotions all funnel into this one word, one understanding, of course, they're gonna throw a temper tantrum because right. they can't make sense of it.
1: Right, but in this process and using athletics as an example, um, there is a connection in um, integration that takes place w- with experience, where you learn over time how to discern the difference between the niggle and the injury that that you know requires you to stop and attend to it. And what's interesting and kind of ironic about that is, athletes become so good at at and so attuned to what their body is telling them. Like I can remember as a swimmer. I didn't need to look at the pace clock. If we were doing a set of 100s, like I knew exactly what my heart rate was and I knew exactly when my finger hit the wall, like what my interval, like what what time I did because you're so in touch with that. But um, the problem with that is that despite all of that, athletes can be expert at ignoring those signals. Like, you know, I'm feeling run down, you know, I should probably, you know, like wisdom would say, like you should like ease, you know, take the, Foot off the gas, but that's like, no, I got I need to do more. I need to push through this so I don't feel this way, or I'm not fit, or they won't taper, or they insist on you talk about this in the book too, like, you know, running a whole bunch before a race or things like that that are driven out of insecurity.
0: Yeah. So it's not only you have to be able to like communicate the same language, but then you have to have like the the security or the quiet confidence to be able to listen to what that Mm -hmm. says. And I think that's where the expertise comes in is it's not just being able to, oh, I'm listening to my body, my body tells me this. No, you've got to be able to discern like what's real. And then what's what I'll just call fake. And then security, Right from, oh, I don't want to taper because, like, I'll feel like I'm training less and I'm losing fitness. Well, you're not going to lose fitness in a week, it's Mm -hmm. not going to happen. It can't physiologically happen. That's the fake part, that's the insecurity talking. So, you've really got to like meld this, listen to your body plus this confidence to be able to discern like what's true and what's not.
1: Right. And that puts the lie to the traditional idea of toughness. Like the, that that idea would be like, I'm gonna, you know, I just train harder than everyone. But if that's coming from a place of insecurity because you're afraid of taking a day off or allowing your body to heal, then that's not tough at all. That's just ignorant.
0: Yeah. It's you know, I always like to put it as does the thing have the power or are you in control? Mm-hmm. And so much of toughness is like, do I have some semblance of control over things? Not complete control, but some semblance where I can influence it. So if the thing has all the control, if I can't step away from the run, say, hey, you know what? I'm a little sick and I've got a race coming up. So it's probably better that I rest. If I can't do that without like that anxiety coming up, Mm -hmm. right, that should signal It's an issue that I need to be able to work with to sit with that discomfort so that the thing doesn't have the control. And instead I'm making the wise decision and taking the action.
1: Yeah, and the coach or the mentor or the leader has to understand how to instill that in the people that they're working with, right? So that's the difference between the controlling Bobby Knights out there who strip their athletes of any agency or control versus the empowering coach who understands how to seed that intrinsic motivation and that true confidence where the athlete or the mentee is empowered to make their own decisions and feels like they have input into the trajectory of their career.
0: The easiest way to make an athlete worse is to take away autonomy. Because like- And they- you
1: think and that goes back to the traditional versus the truth. Like, like, if you just tell like, this is what you do, do what I say, I'm gonna make you a champion. I will completely control every aspect of your life. Like, you know, I don't know, Bella Caroli and these gymnasts, or you hear all these crazy examples. And you know they're successful in some regard. Those people don't tend to turn out to be completely you know well-rounded individuals. Uh, but there are examples of that being successful, and yet that's really a wrong-headed approach.
0: Yeah, because it's all it's doing is you're not training anything, right? You're training someone to respond to this single individual based on fear or punishment. But if you look at most sports. Like it's not the the coach isn't out there with the athlete on top of them yelling and screaming and doing all that stuff. It's the athlete out there by themselves in mm-hmm. their head having to figure it out. If we take it outside of sport, like you're not worried about what your kids do when you look over them, right? When you're there in the house, yeah. you're worried about what happens when they go out into the world, same in the workplace. So to me, it's it's pretty simple. as like, yeah, that that like, Dictating and controlling method might work if you're right over the top of them, but you wanna train the ability. And in in order to do that, you have to give them a choice. Right,
1: my favorite example in the book of that is what Kerr does with the Warriors when they're at the top of their game and they're winning everything. So tell tell that story. I think it's very instructive.
0: Yeah, so it's the middle of one of their championship seasons and they were winning a lot. They were one of the best teams, obviously. And he looks around and he says, you know what? Like, ah, we're lacking a little something. So he goes in the, pre, in the pregame, like shoot around in the morning and says, guys, you're gonna coach, I'm gonna step back. You, 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 run the, you run the practice, you run the game, you call everything, I'm gonna step back. And he just hands over the reins. Has anybody ever done that in the NBA before? I don't think in the NBA. Yeah. There wasn't an example that I could find of just turning it over to literally players, not player Mm -hmm. coaches, literally players to call it. But I think that's such an empowering thing because what what message does it send? I trust you and it's up to you. Yeah, which is the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. It's saying, I trust you, I have my faith in you and you guys go show me you got it. Mm -hmm. You guys get the work done. like. I have the confidence in you. You want to talk about instilling trust and confidence? That's how you. That's how you do it, right? Because that's that's real. That's turning over those reins. That's saying, "Hey, I believe in you guys, and let's see what you guys can do." I'm going to give mm-hmm. you the shot,
1: right? And so, in the workplace, the analogy would be stop micromanaging and find ways to incentivize the people that are working underneath you, um, and provide them with agency to make decisions and choices.
0: Which goes against our natural inclination when things are tough and when things are going, you know, difficultly. Mm -hmm. Our natural inclination is like, oh man, I've got the answers. I've gotta like control everything and do all this stuff. But it backfires. And if you look at, again, the research in the workplace is very clear. Google ran, you know, a study on teams that's found that the number one thing in terms of team productivity was psychological safety. What is psychological safety? I can take risks to do my job. Right. And if I fail or fall short, I still have job security. Exactly. Yeah. And so much so much. when we create the culture that is like, oh, like fear-based or punishment-based or fear of losing your job, that doesn't make people tough or resilient. That makes people constrict so that they're in protective mode. Mm-hmm. They don't take the risks. They don't go for the innovation because why would they? If they do it and it fails, they lose a the job.
1: Right, they're just trying to figure out what does my boss want me to do so my boss will approve of this action rather than what is the most effective solution to this problem.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. What, what you often see, and this is actually a, a major problem in actually education because they often micromanage and like dictate everything is that people stop trying because if they know they're gonna be like micromanaged, then they quickly figure out, okay, here are the boxes I need to check Mm -hmm. to get the job done and anything else like isn't wanted or won't get me anywhere. So I'm just gonna fall to the level of the micromanagement. Right, you talk about
1: that in the context of education, teachers have to, they have this curriculum that's, you know, drilled down to 15 minute intervals. And basically there's no room for them to be creative and to really express what inspired them to become teachers in the first place.
0: Exactly, and that's probably why we have such a crisis in teaching.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Well, let's talk about the next one, which is is learning how to respond instead of react. And uh, this is like, at the crux of like the whole thing, right? We were talking about temper tantrums and the like, like how can you maintain your equanimity and your mindfulness under extreme pressure so that you can make the right decision and kind of put yourself in the best position for the optimal outcome?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is kind of the crux of the whole thing from an individual level Mm -hmm. is like, how do you keep, In the book, I like to call it is, how do you keep that alarm from spiraling out of control to a full freak out? And the way to do that is create space. Mm -hmm. It's not to bulldoze through, it's to create space so that you can navigate it. Because if you look at the science, it's pretty simple. It's, we tend to feel something, our inner dialogue starts to go. And then based on how loud those two things are, we're pushed or shoved towards an action. And we want that action to be something good and productive, but often what it is is it's the easy path that choosing the candy instead of the vegetables, mm-hmm. because we're just trying to escape this feeling uh, inner dialogue thought spiral. So how do we deal with that? We gotta slow it down create some space so that we don't have like the momentum of those two things like feeling intertwined and feeling like you know once they spiral it's out of control and we can't do anything.
1: Right. So this is where mindfulness practices come in because you're talking about like if you're a, if you're talking about an athlete you're talking about, you know, nanoseconds. Yeah. So creating how do you create space when you're in a situation of flow and you have to just you know kind of intuitively move in the right direction and not react and fall prey to you know some kind of base emotion that's gonna make you make the wrong decision, right so creating space is a habit, a practice that we can cultivate through these more eastern influenced modalities, but at the same time, like I'm thinking about something you talked about earlier in the book, which is you know, when we're pushed up against the wall, we have this hormonal flight or fight response, right? And you kind of put the lie to that in that it is not binary in the way that we've thought about it. Like it isn't an either or thing. It's actually a much more complex um, kind of th- happening that's going on there.
0: Yeah, you, your brain is predictive. So it's trying to figure out the, the best solution based on the, the, the history it has and then the situation in front of you. So it's not fight or flight. It's we can we can run away, we can escape. We can find a friend to protect us. We can like to protect our young. We can like find community. There's all these variations of responses that, that come with it. And each has its own kind of like hormonal milieu that, that, mm-hmm. that like comes with it. So to me, it's about matching the right response with the right situation. And how, you do, how do you do that over time? You gotta train your body just like we would or train your mind just like we would our body to like default towards this response in these situations.
1: So walk me through how you practice that and how you preach practicing that with the athletes that you work
2: with.
0: Yeah, so with athletes I work with, a lot of times I call it as, let's practice having a calm conversation which means I'm gonna put you in a situation that is incredibly uncomfortable. And then I want you to learn to sit with it and then use various strategies, which we can talk about to figure out how to create space. Mm -hmm. Those strategies could be everything from visualize, self-talk, talking out loud, It could be like zooming out and shifting your perspective, your attention, any number of things, bunch of them. And in terms of putting themselves in an uncomfortable situation, we can do that. If I'm talking runners, you can do it in a workout, but you can do that anywhere. You could hop in an ice bath. You could go to a coffee shop and you're shy and don't wanna talk to your neighbor. You can go sit there and talk to your neighbor. Anything that makes you uncomfortable, is an opportunity to train your mental muscle to be able to like sit with that and navigate that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the science shows that if you practice that, you develop a capacity to recall that under duress in situations that aren't necessarily related or analogous to you know going into the coffee shop.
0: It, exactly. It's essentially all you're doing. We'll simplify the neuroscience a lot, but. You have an area in your brain called the amygdala, which is threat processing area. It's like the alarm signal, right? Mm -hmm. Whenever something, your brain thinks something bad is gonna happen, amygdala goes up. You have the prefrontal cortex, which is what I'd call like the controller. It's like the rational part that's job is to dampen down that amygdala and say, hey, everything's good. Mm -hmm. Don't have to worry about it. Anytime we can train our prefrontal cortex to send the message, Hey, amygdala sending the alarm, everything's good. Like, don't freak out. It ingrains that pathway where you have this stronger emotional control. But the the opposite occurs too, right? Right. If you train your brain to react all the time, it's gonna react all the time. That that sensor is gonna be hypersensitive, you know. In outside of all these performance worlds. Mm-hmm. What do we often do in our world of let's say social media we train our brains to react our amygdala to go off even at the slightest hint of like oh that that was kind of off mm-hmm. you know so i think we have a world and that's just one example but we have a world that trains us to almost see everything as a threat and we have to fight back against that a little bit mm-hmm. and if you look at also that threat response tends to be amplified with anybody who feels exhausted or burned out.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. How does that work or mesh with flow states? So obviously, you know, every athlete aspires to be in that state where it's almost an experience of no mind where you're just in the in the process of doing what you do and doing it as best as you can do where a pause to reflect before responding is by definition an interruption of, that is a non-flow experience, right? So in training, you're trying to acclimate the athlete to the experience of flow, right? But how do those two things, I guess like an intervening event would disrupt the flow and then it becomes about like respond or react.
0: Yeah, so this, I'm glad you brought up this up because this was one of my favorite topics to talk about. So flow, is great, okay? We all desire to be in flow, it's wonderful. If you're in flow, your job is to stay in flow, okay? So whatever you need to do to stay in flow, and actually some of the research shows in terms of attention is distraction will actually help you stay in flow.
1: Oh, really? That's counterintuitive. It
0: is. So if you look at golfers, for example, when they're in flow, they'll often talk to their caddy more to keep their mind off of everything else that they're oh, actually doing. If they doing, start thinking
1: about what they're doing, then they, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So
0: it keeps you in that, that state. Okay, so if you're in flow in that state, whatever works there, but that's where these tools help, right? If you have the ability to what I call zoom in and zoom out, like distract yourself or really deep down and get super focused. If you train that ability, when you're in flow, you have the ability to distract yourself a little bit productively. Mm-hmm. But we're not always, the other part of it is, we're not always gonna be able to get in flow. Flow generally occurs when it's what's called a just manageable challenge. And physiological arousal levels are moderate. Mm -hmm. So if we can keep our arousal levels relatively high, but within check, we can get in flow. If for whatever reason, our nerves, anxiety, pressure, et cetera, get our arousal levels up high, super high, we can't get in flow.
2: Mm.
0: So we need to be able to do something when we're in situations where like those arousal levels are through the roof. And what the science and research and psychology says there is that you can enter what's called a clutch state, which is essentially, instead of flow is like letting it happen, clutch is like you have to make the decision to make it happen. Mm. And there it's like you need Again, similar tools, but now instead of distraction, zooming like out, you have to zoom in while not losing your mind because you're super, like, you know, adrenaline's going nuts.
1: Right, so the clutch state also, I suspect, can be trained by placing yourself in stressful situations and trying to recall these mindfulness practices to provide space, right? So it's something you can train for. And I love the idea between, the zoom in and you use like Frank Shorter and marathoning versus the zoom out, which is the fighter pilot that has to like take into account like all these things that are going on because he's confronted with all these dials and switches and he can't just focus on one thing in order to make the right decision in that clutch experience.
0: Exactly, that's one of the things that was really fun um, researching and writing about is because Again, there's nuance, and maybe this is what the the message of the book is, is like the more skills or tools you have in the tool belt, the more you're able to match one of those tools with whatever situation like you face. Mm -hmm. So in the example you just gave there, like Frank Shorter, the marathoner, had to zoom in and get really focused. If you're a fighter pilot, like you have to zoom out so you can pay attention to all these things because like when danger is happening you t- your mind tends to narrow in on the like one little beeping buzzing thing and the research shows that even if something else is like beeping and buzzing you don't hear it which can be really dangerous if you're in a in a like dangerous situation in the in the air right so you right, got to right. train your mind to zoom back out even though it's telling you like focus on this one dial that is wrong
1: right that's fascinating yeah because if you're thinking about marathoning, like just focus on your breath, like pick one thing as a metronome to crowd out all of the pain, pain and whatever other things that can be distraction so you can just execute on the one thing. But that's very different from a rapidly developing and potentially dangerous situation where you're being attacked by lots of different things and you have to do some really rapid mind work to figure out what, where your attention is best
0: placed. Exactly, it, attention is a tool, it's a trainable tool. And I think too often we just kind of let it happen, mm-hmm. but training it happens when you're deliberate about it.
1: Right, so how do you train it to know when you need to zoom in and when you need to zoom out? Yeah, so, so you're this, not just prey to whatever your brain is <laughs> wants to do, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: So, so here I think this comes down to like practice, right? Uh huh. Is to use the fighter example. What do they do? They go in simulators, right? And they have all these alarms buzzing and beeping, et cetera, and they have someone watching and essentially coaching them up. And if you miss an alarm, what does that tell you? you needed to zoom out in that situation. And you didn't because you didn't hear that other alarm. Noise.
1: But what if you're zoomed out and you're just hearing lots of bells and you're just taking it all in. And what you really needed to do was figure out how to zoom in on the right thing. Yeah, that's why they have the checklist, <laughs> okay.
0: yeah. right? I mean, that, that's, that's uh-huh. the reason, but I, I think in other pursuits, it's, you know, when I'm coaching runners, what often happens, and I did some research on this actually, is what we focus on in practice is entirely different than what we focus on in a race. So in practice, we know we're gonna make through it. Mm-hmm. We know we're gonna get on the other side, right? It's challenging, but it's, no one's watching. It doesn't matter. So what we tend to think of is, yeah, we're focused on the work, but we'll think of, oh, what am I you know, gonna have for lunch? What am I doing later with Johnny or Susie? Like there's more distracting thoughts of, of that stuff. In a race, there's almost none of that. So in practice, we're training our brain to like get through this workout by sometimes occasionally thinking about like the future and distracting us, Mm -hmm. but that's not what we're facing in a race. So instead of seeing practice just as, hey, I need to hit these times on this workout to get things done. You need to see it as what's my psychological or mental goal? What tool am I training? And actually one of my really good athletes in college, Brian Brazos went on to run professionally. He called it some practices I need to let my mind go to a bad place and then see if I can figure my way out. Mm. And if I can't, if I fall apart, then that tells me that I didn't have the right tools to use and I've got to develop those tools.
1: So an example of that would be what? Like like let's say you're doing I don't know 400 repeats or whatever like just run the first 100 meters way too fast. So then you're like, you know, you would never do that in a race, but what would I do in this situation where I've overexerted too early
0: on? Put yourself in a hole. Yeah. Exactly. Like you put yourself in a hole and then now you have to like get get out of that because like you can't just quit, you're just not going to stop. So like how do you get out of that situation which is not, you know, comfortable?
1: Mhm. Mhm.
0: Yeah, interesting.
1: Um, Well, let's talk about the last one, which is the last pillar transcending discomfort. I mean, this is sort of like the global thing, right? Like how can you inoculate yourself or that's the wrong word. How can you create a habit of exposing yourself to difficult things and increasing that level of difficulty gradually over time?
0: Yeah, so this was probably, you know, one of the funnest sections or the funnest section to, because it like pulls out from the individual and says, okay, what's the global thing, as you said? And it's kind of like surprising, but it kind of isn't, but it's like, well, if you fulfill people's basic psychological needs and you combine that with meaning, people can handle really difficult things. And what are those basic psychological needs? Competency feeling like I can make progress and grow in whatever I'm doing. Autonomy, which we talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. like feeling like I have some sort of control over things and belonging. Do I belong to this group? Do I feel a part of this? Is this bigger than myself? And you combine that with meaning, meaning is this endeavor or this thing I'm getting through that is really hard? Is it more than just for a paycheck or for whatever, whatever it is. Yeah.
1: So as a coach or as a leader in the workplace, like how do you cultivate those things so that your team can do the best they can do?
0: So I think this is where we often get it wrong. What do we do in the workplace? We often come up with core values and slogans. Yeah. We put them on the wall. (laughs) And then we say, look at those things. With a picture of like uh, like a, Crew rowing a boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. You know. It's like the stock photo. Yeah, and it's like, look at these things. So motive, so inspired. This is the problem. They're not authentic. People know, right? Mm-hmm. People like understand. Our brains can tell real from fake. So if it's not authentic, it's not going to work. So the the best thing that you can do as a leader to create resilient teams, is to be authentic and support people in a way that helps them be authentic in what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about you know autonomy, belonging, all of these things, well, you have to actually want those, number one. And then number two, you have to lead by example, by setting the stage. And I think there's some brilliant examples in sport. One that I talk about in the book is, you know, Greg Popovich, the famous coach for the San Antonio Spurs, how does he create belonging? Well, well. before getting there, actually I'll tell a story then I'll get to there. Um, he creates belonging by inviting all the players to these like well thought out dinners where he takes the time to pick the food. He's a wine expert, he picks the wine. He arranges the tables in the right way with the right people to kind of create this natural conversation. Because how do we create belonging? It's not through like trust falls and like random exercises. It's through genuine connection. What Popovich does brilliantly is he creates the space for genuine connection. And it's something that he's passionate about. He loves food, he loves wine. So people get excited about it. But he doesn't let them choose the wine or the food. No, he doesn't. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But here, here's what happened, okay? I've, I've worked with a couple of NBA teams. And after this kind of story broke, they'd be like, Steve, we tried team dinners. No one showed up. Uh huh. Be like, you're missing the picture. The dinner isn't the thing. It can be an avenue. But the thing is, Popovich was really passionate about this and created the environment where people wanted to connect. Because it was authentic to what he was inspired by. Exactly. Like find that thing for you, whatever it is, and it will Uh will like coalesce and help people.
1: Right, I'm just imagining the chief financial officer, you know, who's into birding, making his team go birding with him.
2: You know,
0: it, you know, it might go sideways. It might go sideways, yeah. you know, it has to be something people generally like to do. But I, I do think it's like that, that, that passion is contagious and opens up an avenue. Uh-huh. But the, the bottom line is it's again, very simple. It's be authentic. And the yeah. other thing that I think is important and then I've found in the research is that we often think that we have to like establish trust and then be authentic and vulnerable, but it's the opposite. We authenticity
1: have to, breeds trust. Exactly, yeah. mm-hmm.
0: right? Is it, you don't get that, that trust without the authenticity. Right. You have to take the leap of faith so that the person sitting across from you says, oh man, like that person is taking that leap. Yeah. I'm gonna do that with them.
1: And authenticity demands vulnerability. And this is where it gets tricky because leaders and athletes have been you know, a nerd to that idea. Like we've been taught since the beginning, don't show weakness, right? Where ultimately greater strength is mined through the exploration of vulnerability, but it's a counterintuitive principle for a lot of leaders
0: and high achievers. Exactly. And I think the other part is, is it's like, once you've, if you're a high achiever, you're a leader, you're a CEO, Like you've been taught those things, and you've also kind of grown into this hierarchy where it's almost like you have to learn how to put your ego aside as well, which is Mm -hmm. a very difficult thing. Yeah. Because you're known as the CEO, this guy who has the answers, all this good stuff. And now you have to say, you know what? I'm going to put my quiet down my ego so that like we can share things that might be real and difficult and hard.
1: Right, because the delusion is that by expressing that vulnerability, that you'll degrade the trust that you've created. But ultimately, as we just talked about, that authentic expression of vulnerability will engender even greater trust. Exactly. But it's it's a risk.
0: It's 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 scary. It is, and 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 that's where you know I call this book "Do Hard Things" because I think part of it is, you know, and you talked about this even with myself and running, is that. The growth comes from the discomfort. It's in there mm-hmm. if you can go in there, navigate it, and figure out how to come out on the other side.
1: Right. And the beautiful thing is you see this cover and you're like, do hard things. Like you think you're gonna read this book about like, here's how I'm gonna, you know, go to SEAL camp and make it through. And it's like, no, for any athlete, they know they already know like. Doing the hard thing is the easy thing when it comes to the practicality of the training. If anything, we need to hold ourselves back. Like, that's not the issue that needs throttling. The real hard thing, the hard thing that we need to do is the more nuanced approach to all of this that requires these challenging and frightening emotions to be called forth, such as vulnerability and authenticity and mindfulness and all of this kind of thing.
0: Exactly, the things that we think are hard aren't actually the hard Exactly, That's the
1: succinct way of putting what I just said.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And
1: that's, so it's kind of like a Trojan horse in that regard. A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the book is amazing. Um, Before I let you go though, there are like a couple things that I wanted to ask you about, not the least because it's sort of been top of news right now, which is, the fact that this six-year-old ran a marathon last week and the, the, the internet is not you know, uh, speaking kindly of, <laughs> of what just occurred.
0: Yeah, I was. Is re- that the
1: youngest person who's ever done a sanctioned marathon? I think it is. Yeah. That's the youngest one. What was one going on here?
0: You know, I'm not the parent, but I can tell you, and I think Kara Goucher said this very well, this isn't gonna help the child.
1: It didn't seem like, and I don't know, and I, I didn't dive too deeply into this, but it does seem like the kid wasn't really that enthusiastic. It's not like it was intrinsically driven by this kid's desire to do this. It was more coming
0: from the parents. So if you look at it, the parents are are runners. They have this thing where they do all these races with their, I think they have six children. Yeah, didn't they do the Appalachian Trail yeah. or something? Uh-huh. So. It's a running family, et cetera, which is, which is fine, whatever. But if you're a six-year-old, you have to put it. You have to put your mind in that, that six-year-old. A six-year-old doesn't have the choice. They don't know what they're getting into. What they probably see, and it took them like eight hours to run the marathon. So they obviously weren't trained, although I don't know how you'd train a six-year-old. But right. what you see here is most likely is pretty simple. You have a kid who sees all his siblings, participating in these races you have a fa- you have parents who participate in these races with the family and you know video them for youtube and all that stuff and you just have a kid who probably wants attention support love etc like any child wants mm-hmm. and the path towards that looked like probably running a marathon
1: right it doesn't necessitate an explicit pronouncement from the parent, like we expect you to do this. It's just implied because this is what we do as a family.
0: Exactly. And that's where I think it's really dangerous because again, as a parent, you have to be like, and I'm not one, so I'm not trying to speak for any, but I've seen and worked with athletes who had similar, very young experiences in running and endurance sport. And it, creates this weird kind of identity cementation around things. And this weird, like, this is how I get approval from my parents. Mm -hmm. And this is where that comes from. And that's a very dangerous game to play. We're not even talking about the physical ramifications of a six year old running a marathon. I just think from a psychological standpoint, that's a very dangerous game to play. And I think, It's concerning and you're seeing more and more of it in the age of social media, Instagram, et cetera, where parents don't realize the expectations, the psychological baggage they're placing on their young kids from like Mm -hmm. projecting using their children for their athletic pursuits. Yeah, and I think it's important to point out that that nobody's,
1: Nobody's implying a you know nefarious motive on on behalf of the parents. It's just a lack of awareness around this.
0: Exactly. It's it's you know you see this at every sport. You see it in the little leagues, like soccer parents or what have you, baseball parents. Um, I see it all the time, as I said, my wife's an elementary school teacher mm-hmm. and I get invited to these games with her and she drags me along to her classes and it's the wildest crap I've ever seen. It drives me nuts. Just, you mean like screaming parents? Screaming and parents, parents, right. parents of like five-year-olds yelling at refs and you're just like, <laughs> it's a youth soccer, like, or yeah. youth tag football game, like uh-huh. chill out. But you know, one of the interesting thing, I was, I was talking to a former, uh, well, teammate of mine, we ran on the same club team. Lindsay Gallo, who was NCAA champion at Michigan in the 1500. And she made this nice comment. She said, you know what, Steve? I have kids now. I have a bunch of friends who, you know, used to run college at a high level. They're on the sideline and they're chilled out. They're not yelling at their kids. They're not worried if the kid wins or loses or whatever. And we had this nice conversation where it's like, I, I've seen the same thing. Because if you've been through the crucible, you've been to a relatively high level, you know what it takes, you know what the psychology is, you know that like basically, and this is coming from me in coaching, the parent can either get in the way or they can just kind of support and allow them to flourish. Mm -hmm. And so many think like, oh, if I do this, this, and this, they get in the way. But I'll tell you from a college coaching standpoint, I had more than a handful of parents and they're good people. It's not that they're bad people. They want the best for their kid. I had more than a handful of parents who I had to tell, hey, can you not show up at the conference championship? (laughs) Because because the kid would freak out because they have expectations. And it's not like the parent was intentionally doing that. No, 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 I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It's pretty crazy. It's and it is funny, you know, just being, when you when you become a parent and you go to all those events, like, yeah, if you if you've come up in athletics, particularly athletics at a high level, like you're just not the person doing that unless you had a very unhealthy experience with that. The people that are screaming and yelling tend to be people who were not athletes or had a very frustrated experience with athletics and are projecting onto their kids some kind of unfulfilled you know, hope and dream.
0: Exactly. If I had mm. one message to parents, it would be chill out. Yeah. Like on your ath on your athlete. And I have this debate with my wife all the time, who is also a, a very she was all American in 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 track in um in college. And we have this debate all the time. We're like, do we really want our our kid to be like a a runner, or or not? Just because mm-hmm. it's like, do you want that? like expectation and how would we handle that? And we're always just like, hands off, like no coaching, like you do you, like whatever you wanna do, you wanna run, great. You wanna play soccer or join math club, doesn't matter. And I think that's because we've both like been through that crucible of like, ah, like it's great, don't get me wrong, but you've gotta be the one who chooses to do it.
1: Well, let me let me put you at ease a little bit as somebody who's been in the parenting game for for a while, like you're, Decision as to whether or not you want your kid, if you end up having a kid, to go into running is really not something you need to concern yourself with because your kid will let you know. <laughs> like they, they don't, it's like they're their own people. Yep. They don't come from you, they come through you. And they're a little bit more baked than you presume in terms of the nature versus nurture thing. Yeah, so I love that. They tend to be very different than what you expect and that becomes your own personal kind of growth experience with them as your teachers.
0: That's awesome, that's great advice.
1: Um, One final thing though, because people are gonna kill me that I have, if I don't like, I've got this elite track and field marathon coach sitting across from me and I have not even asked anything about like, you know, how to be a better runner for all the people that are listening to this, thinking that they're gonna get tips on, you know, for their next marathon. So maybe we can round this out with just a few thoughts on, where you see the average you know, marathoner, half marathoner type person kind of go astray and where you think that their attention should be better focused. And this is obviously in the most general yeah, terms. Yeah,
0: but. very open-ended. So what I would, I would say is this, I see the, the general marathon, half marathoner, they train too hard, they go too hard on their easy days. Hmm. They overcook it on the easy days and don't go slow enough, right? I just got dragged on the internet
1: over the past couple of days for something I posted like last October where I posted that little clip of the Kenyans, you know, doing their shuffle and I was like slow days are for going slow and it's them running like extremely slow, right? Yeah. And for some reason in the last couple of days this this tweet resurfaced and a bunch of people are are angry or sh- there's like a, di- a divisiveness of opinion about this because I think there is, maybe you know more about this than I do, but there was a track and field coach who was tweeting a lot about how, you know, we over index on the slow miles and like that shouldn't really be considered training and blah, blah, blah. And a bunch of co- coaches piled on him and said, no, that's not true. So there seems to be a little bit of a, Twitter controversy around slow days and what that means and the appropriateness of, you know, what is kind of pejoratively called junk miles, but which I think are important. So, maybe a few thoughts on that to oh, clear man. this up from your perspective. Yeah, you're
0: gonna throw me into the the social media Twitter mayhem. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Do you know what I'm talking about yeah, though? You're, okay. you're aware of this. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. oh okay. yeah. The controversy is right. in running. We argue over yeah. the weirdest things. Um, so, here, here's what I would say is that There's no doubt in longer distance stuff, aerobic development is key. And for most of us, that aerobic development takes a really long time or for everyone, it takes a really long time. And the key is how much easy running can I accumulate safely? So your slow, easy days. And what does easy actually mean? So here's my, I'll give you the simple answer. You should be able to have a conversation like we're having here. Mm -hmm. If now don't get me wrong, you shouldn't be able to like have a conversation, not breathe, but you should be able to have a relatively normal conversation. If you start having what I'd call a a texting conversation, you're going too fast. Uh So that's how I kind of frame it. And I think, if you look at that and you're doing it in a and again, whatever you can handle, easy days are are great. Are you going to need more than that? Of course. Like the intensity stuff matters. Mm-hmm. Of course. But it's like the the icing on top of the cake that like is vital. Like you need it for the ta- the cake to taste good, but you don't need like as much as you would to bake the cake, right? The ingredients to bake the cake. So to me, it's like we argue over these things and, and the I'll give the historical example to maybe help this out is way back in the day, we used to argue over whether we should walk for a really long time or do interval training on the track for seven days a week. Mm-hmm. In the 1920s, 30s, 40s, right. that, w- that was the debate. <laughs> really long walks or, on the track, smashing 200s every day. Uh Now, no one's debating that. Now we're debating over this like middle ground where everyone agrees you have to run a decent amount of easy stuff. Everyone agrees you have to occasionally go hard. And the advice I'll leave your listeners to, which is like, you know, it's like my little haiku of running, which is like lots of easy running, occasionally go hard, very, very rarely go see God, mm-hmm. which means like go to the well so that you know what it means. Right,
1: right, right, right. I think that's wise advice. My sense is that people don't have the quiet confidence that you talk about in the book to do to go slow on the slow days. Um, and that's part and parcel of why this is debate like, oh, you know, I can't afford to go slow because I'm not fit enough or they don't trust in their training plan or their coach or what have you, or they don't understand just what slow actually means. And on those harder days and hard days, they're not going hard enough. So they're not really training the polarities. They're just kind of in this perpetual gray zone. And then they're confused when they plateau and can't break through that plateau.
0: Yeah, I I think I I agree 100%. I think Mm -hmm. it takes security to run easy. Yeah. Like it takes the confidence. How
1: dare you? Well, don't at Steve, don't <laughs> at me on that. Just you know, put that in your pipe and smoke it and do with it what you will. Um, pleasure to talk to you. I'm really excited for this book to come out and be birthed into the world. You're doing the world a service. I think you did the right thing by graduating from your tenure at University of Houston to make yourself more available to people like you myself, so I thank you for that. And I can't wait to see what this new chapter brings. The book is great, it's called Do Hard Things. You can find it everywhere, comes out June 21st, available for, I don't know when this is going out, maybe it'll be out, maybe it won't, we'll figure that out. Um, And where else do you wanna have people find you? The growth, we didn't even talk about the growth equation, I talked about that with Brad, that's a newsletter and podcast that you do with Brad Stolberg. Um, Where can everybody find, what you're putting out into the world. Yeah, the you, can the you
0: can go to the growtheq.com. You can go to stevemagnus.com or find me on any social media at Steve Magnus. Just don't don't yell at me. Yeah, for getting, in, getting into fights
1: with other track coaches <laughs> about zone two and the like, right? <laughs> All right. Um, we'll come back and talk to me again until then. Uh, it's great talking to you, man. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Rich. On. Peace. Yeah. That's it for today.